Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is kind of like our guide for the Christian cosmopolitan soul with a grace-infused passion for life to the content of the interwebs as we see them for the week. Before we get to the contents of Another Weekend's, and before I tell you who I had the privilege of interviewing this week, I want to give a special thank you to the Reverend Bill Bohr, who is the co-host of New Persuasive Words, along with myself, and who helped me out this week with the musical interludes. Bill is a musical discography on two legs, and this week's episode couldn't have happened without him. And I want to credit him for teaching me that there is stuff worth listening to beyond the corpus of Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen. Thank you, Bill. And now, with no further ado, I present to you my conversation with the Reverend Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert, who is the professor of preaching at Howard University Divinity School. Dr. Nyana Gilbert, who teaches homiletics at Howard University Divinity School. And full disclosure, we are friends and schoolmates. We both were in the prison camp of the graduate program at Princeton Theological Seminary. I mean, seminary. <laughs> Kenyatta, how are you? I'm well, Scott. It's good to, good to hear your voice. Ditto. Same, I, it's, the feeling is mutual. I am happy to be on this uh, podcast with you and uh, looking forward to a great conversation. So here's like my, the first thing, like I, I took one preaching class in seminary and mm -hmm. I really liked the professor, but I thought the class was not one of the more fruitful uses of my time. And I just think teaching preaching has got to be like one of the hardest things uh, to teach in seminary or divinity school. Like to do it well, right in the seminary curriculum, right. So how right. do you how do you deal with it? I mean, you're a good preacher, and you and I like I I really you know you and I have spent years talking about preaching and church things. So like, mm -hmm. uh, how do you do this task? Like teach people how to preach? That seems so challenging to me. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, I think that's a an excellent question, and I always uh, am faced with that question at the beginning of the academic term with my students. Um, and I say to them, you know, we understand that calling in uh, a formal sense where the person is headed to uh, parish ministry, pulpit ministry. Um, that that is that is one thing. However, um, what I say to my students is that my job is to help them to find their authentic uh, voice, their authentic preaching voice. And if, uh, in fact, we are believers and witnesses to um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, plain Christianity as our uh, confessional tradition. So, so for me, my work, uh, I find gratification in just helping people to discover their own voice and honoring their confession in the process. Now, we, we also um, help 
persons who have that sense of call hone their gifts, hone the craft of preaching and understand it from um, from a theological perspective, rhetorical perspective, um, a biblical perspective. All of these things kind of meet in a in a at an inter- intersection when we're talking about uh, the preaching life. And so if if to answer your question, if we can, first of all, fi- find that space where we understand the vocational direction uh, in which we are grounded, one can then from that point move to a deeper understanding of what it means to preach. Do people like come to you all the time and like whine and bitch about like bad sermons? Like, is that like an occupational hazard? Like, you would have heard this guy. They were so bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> but you know, God can use the most fallible, uh, and imperfect, uh, message. I'm always reminded of that as well, uh, and communicate something that could be transforming in life, uh, life restoring or life giving, uh, to a hearer. However, um, we don't want to complicate that. Uh, we don't want to complicate the channels for, for an, uh, an effective reception of the gospel. Jack, Jack Kerouac, uh, after he wrote like the subterraneans, it's a novel he wrote in like four days and all mm-hmm. these critics are like, how'd you do it? And he wrote these like rules for spontaneous prose and they're great. Like, uh, they're amazing. One of them, he says, uh, pay attention to your inner dialogue or your inner monologue. Like basically, you know, why am I tempted this way? Or why am I insecure about that? Or why am I say I don't right. care about the size of my church, but I really do. And I really, you know, like, like basically he's like, if you're, if you get in touch with your own inner dialogue or inner monologue, you'll actually be able to communicate in a way that touches other people's inner monologue or inner dialogue. Right. I agree. So do you, can you tell when a preacher is like, are you ever just like, and I, gosh, I'm thinking, oh my gosh. If people hear this and you visit their churches, like I might like be alienating you, but do you ever just look at people and be like, I just know this person doesn't know themselves. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important for me to help uh, a person who is trying to, um, to preach, to find that authentic center. And so uh, just as you learned how to preach, uh, Scott, by watching others, by apprenticing yourself, um, I learned the same way. But at the end of the day, the people have spoken from your tongue. Um, we all have uh, a human guarantor that um, kind of um, inspires us, um, but others should only be emulated, not imitated. And where you get the inauthentic sounding of, of, of the message of the gospel it's typically because a person hasn't found their their own authentic voice. I, I spent, I think you know, I spent some time in the Amy Zion Church after college, and yeah. they tell this story about this one guy who, like, he, I forget what war he was in Korea or something. He got an injury in his leg, and he was a prominent preacher and had several sons in the ministry. And they said all the guys that and he would he get really excited, he'd come out from behind the pulpit and his he dragged his hurt his sore leg, and so all these guys uh-huh. when they would get out from behind the pulpit, they drug their leg. <laughs> 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 no, they so like they just, you know, it's it's flattering in one sense, you know, like, but, but yeah, I could see how, you, like, sometimes 
the line between emulation and imitation can be like a confusing one for people. Yeah. So in, in African-American preaching tradition, for example, um, who does not uh, admire um, Gardner Taylor, um, the Samuel Proctors, the Prathia Halls, the, um, uh, the Martin Kings, um, trying to understand, you know, the, their effectiveness rhetorically through the use of cadence, blending this, this mythic, this mythic vision um, based on kind of rhetorical strategies, use of metaphor and figurative speech. All of that um, um, is, is admirable and have learned from these, these skilled giants. However, they are remembered because they, in some way, have identified their own authentic voice. And, um, and if anyone else wants to uh, create a space where their voice is heard um, and appreciated, um, I would say in the, the long term, then that person ought not strive to imitate, but to, to use through the channel of emulation an opportunity to find and discover what God has uniquely uh, called them to do, how God has uniquely prepared them to do what God called them to do, and to honor that assignment wherever God may uh, lead the person. You know, there's a lot of like ink spilled today and conversations, you know, you know, and talking heads, you know, bantering around the idea that we're in a increasingly secular or post-Christian context in, in mm -hmm. North America, in places like Western Europe. And that, you know, the, the church is more marginalized. And yet it seems like mm -hmm. that the black church is still more respected as an institution in the black mm -hmm. community than and say the white churches in, in, in majority context is that is that true? Mm -hmm. You think like is there a sense in which there's more stat that, that that the role of the church is a little still a little more significant? Yeah, you know, I, I I would say a lot more significant given given the history and the legacy and what people hold in, as you know important to them. Uh, one of the I think the strengths of of African American preaching and um, seeing life through the context of, of race and ethnicity and culture um, is that there is a sense of honesty about it. You know, one cannot mask uh, who they are if they are minoritized in a predominantly white culture. Um, and the legacy of, of the pursuit of freedom and hope that I think runs um, very deep in African-American churches um, has been a sustaining force that that is difficult to just, uh, I think stems from a number of, of things, you know, um, whether it's kind of this, uh, rejection of denominationalism, whether it's uh, trying to embrace uh, some of the the, the postmodern um, realities and issues of our time, whether or not 
um, certain aspects of inclusion um, or theological um, angst um, and how, you know, in some ways, the liberal tradition has um, has in many ways run its course. And the challenge from the culture often um, causes to um, retreat to rediscover rediscover its its own self. Do you think that like the majority culture, both like maybe in the academy, even in popular culture, is there kind of fetishizing of black church and preaching, like a kind of um. You know, I just remember one time we were looking for a professor of homiletics when I was at did my MDiv, and this you know yeah. president who was a you know kind of really you know uh, nerdy white guy was just saying, well, we want to get a black preaching professor because we found black preaching so powerful. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, how much like has this guy listened to yeah. black? You know, what I mean, like, there's kind of, like there's a sort of romanticizing maybe or stereotype stereotyping and romanticizing. It's it's both. It's both. I think it's uh, romanticizing um, what has what has kind of to the reception of speech. Now, it the, the challenging the challenging piece is that black preachers and black preaching is often caricatured uh, in the sense that even the scho- scholars scholarship has has placed undue emphasis on the performative as opposed to uh, the theological underpinnings and hermeneutical underpinnings that um, that give description to what black preaching is and so as one has an, a more expansive understanding or a picture of, uh, of of what black preaching is, one can I think more fully appreciate not only the aesthetic um, but they can appreciate the uh, the the witness, the witness and the uh, of, of African American preaching. Now, I argue in um, my work, The Journey and Promise, that the best of Black preaching uh, is trivocal, and what I mean by that is, uh, in it, there are the three accents of the prophet, the priest, and the sage, and so. When those things are working in a mutually influential um, way, uh, not only is speech catalytic, but it it has the capacity, I think, um, to honor proclamation in a holistic way. And so while these things show up, I think, in the best of African-American preaching, um, uh, it also has implications for preaching in other traditions, um, regardless of, of race and culture. Uh, what's distinctive and unique about what you said, I think, is the way prophetic preaching and expressions talked about in majority culture, I feel like is so judgmental. It's on the left, it's mm-hmm. these right wing people are unsophisticated and we need to take back the country for them. Or on the right, it's like, God, guns, gays. I mean, it's sort of a, a you know, it doesn't it, like it's. It almost feels like when I hear that kind of preaching, what wherever side it's from, 
Right. My, it's like when you hear like, don't, you see the sign that says, don't walk on the grass. What do you want to do? You want to walk on the grass. That's interesting because you're talking about actually, um, it almost sounds more like description than prescription. Exactly. Exactly. It's all, it's prescriptive only in the sense that, uh, it cautions the preacher not to, um, to up, upstage God. Uh, it, 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 it is, it is this, uh, awareness preaching um, the hope of God speaks. And so if we believe that God is um, working in and through us, um, the best way we can describe that is that the spirit gives us utterance to challenge systemic evils, to prepare people to be hopeful despite their uh, difficult predicaments. And um, what is Particularly, I think, um, distinct in the best of African-American preaching is that it carries this impulse for beauty. So so the prophet is not only prophetic in in challenging the status quo, but the prophet is also a poet. And so um, what cannot reach people through prose or discursive discursive. uh, modes of of communicating. Um, there is a sense of beauty art that draws on um, and figurative speech that gives some distinction um, in in the best of the black preaching tradition. Do you think there's this psychological term called abreactive experience? And basically, it's like I don't know. We all have some degree from our childhoods of some sort of trauma and you know PTSD and things like this. You know that splits us off from ourselves and sometimes. You're in church and you hear some hymn and so just the way it's sung, you start crying or you see a movie and somebody on the screen actually becomes that repressed part of you and there's healing. You can kind of let it out. You can reconnect with it. Yeah. And I feel like that's what so many people need. But do you think like in my experience, like uh, so much preaching actually blocks that kind of experience? Like like I'm insecure and split off from myself. And well, we're going to hear this really sophisticated discourse on this verse. So instead of like healing and reconnecting myself, well, oh. I distract myself from the inner pain by intellectual, you know, engagement with this text or uh, whether it's right wing or left wing. Like if we just know who the wrong kind of person is, right, it's 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 the the gun owner or it's the Trump voter or it's this person or that person. You know, it's the left wing or the right wing. If we just know who the bad guy is or if we just treat 40 days of purpose for our church, all that stuff seems to like actually (laughs) Like it makes people feel good, right? It rallies them right, sometimes. Right. But I feel like it almost blocks the real magic that can sometimes by grace happen in the preaching encounter or, or somehow the gospel sneaks up on somebody yeah. and connects them with the repressed, wounded, you know, mm-hmm. cut off mm-hmm. and half dead part of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. That's why um, prophetic preaching has to be chastened with priestly preaching, priestly concern. The priestly voice um, sees the preacher as this intercessor who mediates sacramentally on behalf of the community who cries out to God. If, if one has always has the microphone and is, is, is heralding um, or standing on the, 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 this, the, the bandwagon of strident criticism. Uh, and so, so while I think, while I think it's it's important for us to um, acknowledge 
you know, our purpose and that God gives us purpose and God wants us to do more. God wants to bless us. Um, God also wants to enter our pain to let us know that God is uh, available and with us. Hmm. And the only way we can discern that, particularly in our culture, is if we're still. Uh, Scripture honors stillness. Be still and know that I am God. is 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 what is rec- recorded in the psalmist. Hey, we need that kind of surprise of God that comes when we are still before God. Yeah, it, this we're in a time that seems to be like the most divided, you know, among issues of like politics and culture and race. I mean, there, there's just so many antagonisms that seem to be reeling. And everybody feels like an exile, right? Like, if you're a conservative, the socialists are taking over. If you're a liberal, the country's under a right-wing thing. If, you know, if you're a gun control person, the NRA's running everything. If you're the NRA person, liberals are coming to take your gun. Like, everybody feels like they're in exile. Like, I'm wondering, like, in this age of, like, exile, antagonism, and division, like, what unique role can the proclamation of the gospel of grace yeah. Uh, what what unique contribution can that kind of preaching or proclamation make in a place that just seems so lonely and hurting and yeah. antagonistic today? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I think the the most important voice to stave off the death of our communities is the voice of the preacher. Uh, we cannot diminish the, the the role of the proclaimer. Those who uh, have been set apart. Those. God has raised for such a time as this uh, to give witness to the grace of God, to the mercy of God. Um, but one, but if one cannot the grace and that they are forgiven to do uh, what they do as far as being a steward of the mysteries of God um, as uh as persons indebted to 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 a merciful God, um, then 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 of course we will have a, a myopic uh, understanding of what it means to live um, live in the in the in the fear of God, Scott. And so so that's I mean that's that's how I see it. I think I think what we lack in this culture is civility. Um, and there are just some things that I, you know, I have to chalk up to the mystery of God. How, what, why is, why is all of this um, happening in our culture today? Why does there seem to be so much resentment and hate um, um, toward persons in our society? A lot of it is people are just angry because of, of either being fearful based on or being uh, betrayed by persons who've made promises and who have the power to um, um, to make good on those promises. People are angry for a number of reasons. People, mothers who've lost their sons to gang violence, who've lost their, um, their lives in foreign lands because of, you know, nations at war with one another. I mean, hmm. there's enough... There's enough human predicament and crisis uh, that will 
that will keep us all busy as Christians for um, the duration of our days. Anyana, thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah. This is, I, I really enjoyed our conversation, as I've always enjoyed our conversations, but in a different medium, this one. Um, where do people who want to hear you preach, where can they hear your sermons? Like, do you have some, like, on, your, on a website, or are you regularly preaching somewhere where our listeners in the D.C. area could drop in? I, I'm an itinerant preacher, so I'm, I am around uh, the country preaching as I'm invited uh, so you're you're for hire. You're you're you know our listeners can bring you in. Well, if 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 they want you know to extend an invitation I, and I can accommodate, I am certainly um, I'm certainly there. The best way to reach me, however, is KenyattaGilbert.com. My website is called the Preaching Project, and essentially, what I'm trying to do on the Preaching Project is to bring uh, a conversation. Uh, in a collaborative way between clergy and scholars um, to promote uh, preaching excellence and effective leadership. I'm connected through LinkedIn, FaceTime, Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Preaching Proj. Um, so feel free to reach You're me. accessible. Yeah, I'm You're accessible. accessible. All right. <laughs> that, is, that is great, man. And thanks. Yeah. I look forward to talking more in the future. God bless you, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Okay. I had to look up at my feet. I'm so happy now that I just want to test To the mocking cast, here we are with David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist, coming to us from Virginia. David, how you animating doing? Animating away, animating everything around me. Your hair, I and mean, it's funny because this should be a video podcast just to see your hair because every week it's so interesting and cool and hip. And sitting in for Sarah Connor, we have the uh, I wouldn't say is infamous is bad though, right? If I say infamous, notorious is bad. The the, the, the acclaimed uh, Leslie Hall from Cincinnati, Ohio, who took a bus to the New York City Conference, her first time at the conference. Uh, Leslie, can you they just tell our listeners just a little about yourself and why you're sitting in today? Um, well, I'm, I'm sitting in because you called me last night and said, hey, you should do this, so... I'm kind of living under a mentality of, ah, just say yes to everything. So I did use we'll, to sell we'll cars right, right after college. I, I, so I'm I mean, you're quite good at it. You're convincing. Um, but yeah, just a little um, live in Cincinnati. Um, work primarily as a barista. So I make coffee for a living, which is great. But uh, go to University Christian Church here in Cincinnati where... Uh, Mandy Smith, our pastor, she was on the podcast probably a couple weeks ago. Friend so. of the show, friend of the show. Yeah. Mandy Smith. <laughs> uh, and, can, okay, just as an exercise in 
something that I think David and I find curious is someone like that has gotten acquainted with Mockingbird probably over the past couple of years. Like when you tell people about Mockingbird, how do you describe it? Like what, like, like <laughs> yeah. what is, when you say, Hey, I'm, I, this is really cool. Like this, you know, thing, like, how do you, I mean, assuming this, you talk about it. If yeah. You yeah. Oh, yeah. Just presumes that she is uh, not embarrassed of it. Yeah. No, not at all. Um, and when I ask, when people ask me and they're like Christians and I went to Bible college. So a lot of my friends come from like those kind of circles. Um, my go-to is, um, not to like throw anyone under the bus or anything like, Hey, it's like relevant magazine, but more like informed and more smart and actually, you know, thoughtful and not horrible, <laughs> but not, not to throw anyone under the bus, not to throw anyone under the bus. <laughs> it's like relevant really bad, with Sudoku but... <laughs> puzzles. Um, it's no, like, that's yeah. Not, yeah, no, that's, I, that's, and that's a nice, um, that's an app. So if it's, somebody's not a religious affiliated type what do you like how would you express what you find there uh it usually comes down to like i'll connect with people through like hey did you watch this film cool there's an article about it that's actually really informed so um it was really helpful uh we do a like monthly uh film night through the cafe where i work and we showed oh brother where art thou and it was really cool because there was an essay in mockingbird at the movies that hit on a lot of really good things from my brother where art thou that we used in conversation there. Leslie, thank oh, wow. you. And for all our listeners that want to, if, if you would want to promote uh, mockingbird anyway, <laughs> there it is. You, you've just seen the model way to do it. Uh, both to the uh, affiliate from, uh, Oh brother, where art there? Uh, I'm strangely the only one that's unaffiliated, you know, both for the affiliated <laughs> exactly. and the unaffiliated. Uh, I'm a dapper <laughs> Dan man myself, David, we've got a, a report out from the Church of England that is a little bit of a finger wagging, right, at the clergy in their homiletical practice. Mm, it's kind of alarming, Scott. Uh, the, uh, I, I guess that the, the, the people have spoken and what they've spoken about are that there's, there are too many jokes coming from our, the English pulpits, too many jokes and long uh, sort of rambling anecdotes. Which I, um, you know, uh, we've all been to uh, services where you've heard someone try to do a, a joke, try to pull off a joke that they, they clearly don't, they don't, haven't committed to it, you know? It's either too cheesy or they're trying to be funny or it's not, uh, uh, maybe, maybe that's part of what they're talking about. I always thought that the English, English love being sort of irreverent even in their uh, preaching style. But then it said that people really appreciate um, – uh, I think 27% of people said that they m- much more appreciate lengthy Bible exposition. And I'm assuming this is not just uh, theological conservatives that they're talking about everyone. So um, they're, they're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a grassroots movement to get the um, clergy to be a little bit more serious, I guess, or a little right, tighter. Do you think in the survey there was like mid-level, mid-length Bible exposition, brief, and people chose lengthy? Like, I want it lengthy, long. Yeah, I mean, this, this partly strikes me as how on earth are they getting this data? Because the only people that are going to actually respond to stuff like that are going to be the people that take church extremely seriously. So um, who knows how they got their data. But it does open an interesting uh, subject. It's about how do you use humor from the pulpit? And, you know, it's true. You can... Uh, People who are too funny, and I, I know some uh, preachers who are very funny. Uh, they and they're almost like they they miss their calling. Like they should have been stand up comedians. Uh, 
it, it can attract attention to yourself and it gets people sort of thinking, oh gosh, this person's really funny rather than I'm interested in what they have to say. And it, it reminds me a little bit of what uh, Paul Walker talked about in the Church Issue magazine where he's talking about preaching. He says, no one should be a preacher because they like to preach. They should, uh, you, you, you should be a preacher because you have something to say. Leslie, do um, they do they make jokes over at uh, Cincinnati University Church in Cincinnati? Yeah, definitely. They're more uh, probably self-effacing jokes, but I feel like that's most of Christianity in general. Though, like, how how bad can we make ourselves look for uh, a good sermon illustration? I feel like that's uh, probably the best way to use humor from the pulpit. Like, let's let's talk about this time where I failed on my face, and it was great. Yeah. And we learned a lesson from it. Oh, isn't that true? I mean, you can never, like, 101, you can never be a positive illustration. You yourself, you always, if you can never be the hero of your story. You always have to be the fool, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. it's, a, it's interesting. I heard Jerry Seinfeld in an interview with Howard Stern, I think, say that actors want to be somebody else and comics want to be themselves. And I think there's a difference between being pastoral and personal, but the personal can serve the pastoral. I, I mean, I think in some ways, like you're, you're, you're the, you know, you're the, the clay jar through which the treasure of grace comes. And so on some level, I think if humor is, it, it all goes back to Thomas Merton. I think the whole thing about seeing versus being yourself. If If you're, being yourself and you're not self-conscious, like David, you said, they're not committed to it or they're, you, you can tell they're nervous. So it makes you nervous. But I think if it's really who you are in a grace moment of being, then jokes are great. And sometimes even funny. Yeah, absolutely. Pe- I think humor, humor from the pulpit is, is amazing. And it's, it's, it lowers people's defenses, especially when it's self-deprecating or when it's just absurd. I, what you always feel uncomfortable about is when the person is trying to be funny, but that's in life. That's not just in preaching. I mean, if the, if it's not coming naturally, if, if you think it's a um, a technique or something like that. Um, though I gotta say, it was uh, funny that this came up, uh, pun intended, because uh, I preached a couple weeks ago, and I ended up. Wait, why was that a pun? I don't. What was the funny? Because I said it was funny. Yeah, no jokes, humor. Is that technically a pun? I, it's funny were you trying because... really hard for that one? <laughs> that just came to me, guys. I feel like it that's was, what people. Clearly I feel like that's like a lot of people say, like, "Oh, it's so ironic." When really, what they mean is a coincidence. Like, oh, it's so it's ironic. like that Battleanis Morissette song. Yeah, I was just using... on Skype with David, then I saw him at CVS. It's so ironic. No, that's a coincidence. <laughs> Sorry, David. Scott, it was it was a pun because I was using the word funny in it in a different me- w- use of the word funny than uh, haha. I was using it in terms of it is a coincidence. So I think it technically is a pun. It te- it's such a smart pun that it didn't even sound like a pun. See, that's 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 what you're dealing with when you're dealing with me. So you're just dealing with. Such meta jokes that uh, <laughs> anyway, self-deprecating here. Um, I I gave the, I, I gave this sermon in which I uh, didn't honestly have as um, uh, I couldn't find as many illustrations, so I stuck much closer to the text. And I had someone come up to me afterwards and says, "I just love your sermons, especially when you stick to the Bible." <laughs> and I thought to myself, <laughs> "Oh, I, well, that's supposed." To, I think I blurted it out before I could censor myself. I said, "Well, that's hopefully all of them." You know, I'm not. <laughs> I don't go about it like I'm always inspired, like you trying to speak from a text. But um, it does say, you know, people don't, there are interested in the Bible, you know, maybe not in the, the way that sort of a, a fundamentalist might be sort of 
uh, you know, uh, absolutely shackled to it, or you know, we're not th- we're not talking about the Quran here, but it's. Uh, uh, I I got the sense, you know, he would, if 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 especially because the Bible is so fascinating and full of uh, you know life in so many different ways that you know as a preacher, especially when you're when you're almost like, wow, I can't believe this text speaks in such a radical way. I, I'm blown away by it, and then that's going to come across to you. I think people really appreciate that. So maybe these uh, British, uh, maybe it's a combination of awkwardness or. Uh, you know, narcissism, or I don't know what it is, but but people have spoken, and let's uh, let's not uh, let's not deviate too far from uh, the uh, word of God. On another note, on the word of God and deviation, let's talk Christian movies. You both actually pointed me to this article. I think it's in the Washington Post about um, Christian movies that don't suck, basically. Mm. What do you think, Leslie? It was really surprising. I mean, well, not really surprising because I had such I have such a hard time with so many of like the Christian culture things that come out and just how off center they feel from like where the Bible actually talks. So I love that they mentioned like God's not dead and like made some jokes with that about basically like how much that doesn't even reflect the Christian life at all, actually, which was like, oh, man, this is encouraging. I'm not the only one who thinks this way. And here's a dude from the Washington Post saying that. But um, it was cool to see like films like Calvary brought up, which um, is such a beautiful portrait of what I feel like church ministry actually looks like, how it's this very like painful journey for human beings to go through but it's this beautiful picture of grace as well um but yeah, yeah what, what were you guys' thoughts well i thought i mean it, it i think it's actually a lady who wrote that ann hornaday who's who's uh she's kind of a self-confessed you know christian who writes about movies for the washington post and you said uh, that like it's an affliction she's a self-confessed <laughs> i mean she's actually out as a christian yeah well i mean <laughs> i like that yeah the washington post that's great she, fantastic she, she considers it it has been seen as a liability in certain cases and yet she champions nothing but like really great films and this uh this new movie that um with Ewan McGregor Last Days in the Desert I think um that mm-hmm. uh is written and directed by or is at least yeah by Gabriel Garcia Marquez's son I thought was really cool I mean part mm-hmm. of me I get a little sick of uh the putting down Christian low culture because you know it's it's like somehow christians aren't allowed to have their their bad pop culture as well and and because we do it turns out it's it's almost the article's point is hey it turns out there's some christian high culture as well or some quality culture as well as all this schlock that comes out of hollywood as as if you know hollywood isn't producing tons of other kinds of schlock um so I don't want to be too far above it, but I, at the same time, Leslie, I totally understand. God's not dead. I haven't seen it. I don't want to see it. It makes my skin crawl to to, to know that lots of people are watching it. Uh, but who knows? I'm sure that people were working hard behind that film. So mm. I, it's. Uh, but I, uh, I I am personally gratified by the f- movies like uh, Calvary and uh, this, what sounds like a really fascinating film, which I haven't gotten to see yet. 
but then there's you know I guess uh, Noah and uh, I haven't seen Gods and Men or Exodus. What was the Exodus? The Rip Lily Scott one. That was with uh, um, Batman, Christian Bale. Gods, yeah. kings, Exodus, gods, kings, but, princes, Egypt. But there's that incredible one about those the monks in Algeria who died uh, recently. I forget what the uh, title of it was. Of gods and men. That's yeah, a gods it's a and men. French That's film. A, yeah, yeah. You know, so like, I, it's nice to see recognized in the conversation mm-hmm. that uh, before this, our listeners uh, heard before our conversation with Kenyatta Gilbert, who teaches uh, uh, homiletics at you know the premier historically black divinity school in the country, Howard Divinity, he, he would describe prophetic preaching as being descriptive at its best, not prescriptive. And I think that like the problem with preaching and with religious or non-religious movies, if something's prescriptive and just tells you whether it's like religious or whether it's an Oliver Stone conspiracy or whatever it is, if it feels too heavy handed, like it's not describing reality, but prescribing what to think we usually recoil. And if it's offers a thick description of the mysterious thing that we find ourselves in that is life. I think no matter what its theology, we can warm up to it because it, it, there's mm-hmm. actually real truth in the description. Mm-hmm. And, and by definition, a movie that is – the title of the movie is actually a statement that you're supposed to agree with. God's not dead or heaven is for real. I mean that's the – you know you're not going to get something descriptive primarily that is coming from it, – it's, it's prescriptive. And whether that's – you know, I, I react negatively to prescriptive films that are, that are prescribing other types of uh, viewpoints, which is – you know, there's plenty of those. Uh, mm. But – if for some reason, the insecurity about people maybe not completely getting whatever it is we're trying to say or not being able to deal with metaphor or uh, humor even, that you have some of these Christian films being made that are painfully prescriptive from the, from the first page of the script, uh, meaning the title page. And that's, that, that's sad to me. Leave on this is wound like a crown Because it's child Jesus Cause he lights the main And he sends him to the finest school in town Leave on, leave on lights is money and lastly, David, we got something that caught my eye here in Another Weekends about self-compassion over self-esteem. Yeah. Self-compassion over self-esteem. I mean, it's like two buzzwords battling it out uh, in the Atlantic. Kristen Neff, who's uh, sort of like a mindfulness guru slash social science person. I think she's got a couple of TED Talks. She wrote something about how the self-esteem movement um, – uh, has failed us or has produced nothing like a, um, a generation of narcissists because self-esteem is based on the idea that you need to think of yourself as better than other people or above average. And um, self-esteem is not available when we actually need it, which is when we failed. So, cause it, cause it's so mm-hmm. tied to either other people's opinion of us or our own achievements. And that self-compassion, instead of isolating you from other people, um, self-compassion would be the idea that, you know, when you fail, it's like, oh, everybody fails. And you know, self-compassion, I think, is a um, 
sometimes religious folks get nervous about that because it involves a high anthropology of like, hey, everyone deserves compassion. When in fact, uh, I think you can approach it from a low anthropology. It's like, well, actually, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So when you actually, when that tends to be you in practice, uh, it is evidence that you're part of the human race, meaning part of the uh, children of God who who God loves. And uh, so I'm a big, I think self-compassion is great. It's uh, love thy neighbor as thyself. And, you know, people think, oh, well, that means, you know, we're all self-loving and that's the, the essence of sin. And that's not true. Self, self-worship is what sin is about or putting self-centeredness. But usually that doesn't translate into self-compassion or self-love at all. It's you treat yourself you, it just as uh, you're under the law, you know, everything about you, you've got this internal persecutor and enemy and uh, are, you're not your own ally. You are, um, you, you've just internalized huge amounts of uh imperative that you're constantly falling short of. So this is me ranting a little bit, but it's a great interview. And I think it's really worth talking about because she bats away or she deals with a lot of the problems people have with self-compassion. Oh, isn't that just letting yourself off the hook? Oh, won't that make people just be lazy and not do anything? She says, actually, no, the opposite's true. And this is what we believe about grace. You know, if you tell people they're forgiven and they're really forgiven, are they just going to sit around and do nothing? Well, no, in fact, they're going to be, this research shows that, uh, as well as the, you know, the Bible and uh, life, that, uh, you know, someone who's forgiven will be more forgiving of another person. They'll be quicker to admit their own faults. They'll be quicker to say sorry. They'll be more motivated to try to, to do risky things and to fail and therefore succeed. Uh, so it's, uh, they won't play it as safe. And I, so I think it's a great article that's getting out of some real deep existential truths um, that unfortunately will be coded with buzzwords that will cause many of us to look away because, you know, as we know, there's another buzzword coming down the pipe. I won't look away. <laughs> I'll stare those bu- uh, buzzwords down. You know, I have a what, book on my shelf here. Um, I think it's by David Pallison. So it's called When People Are Big and God is Small. And I think that, like, on one level, like, we all know about codependence and the tyranny of sort of uh, basing your self-esteem and self-image on other people's opinion. But sometimes we're like, well, don't care what people think. Well, not caring what people think is usually leads you ultimately to be a sociopath. <laughs> so there's only right, so there's some way, right, where you have to, this is imputation, uh, maybe the internalized uh, bearing witness to the gospel for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Leslie, final thoughts in your maiden voyage here as our as as our guest co-host panelist yeah yeah i definitely agree uh i've always had such a hard time like viewing you know self-esteem and kind of an attitude of like okay pick up your cross and follow christ and have an attitude of self-sacrificial love and like this disposition that cares for others higher than you care for yourself and i've seen that pendulum swing back back and forth where, you know, you, it does become this like self-righteous kind of, I, I don't care. And you kind of become a sociopath and you begin to hurt other people just because you're like, you think of yourself as the most important person in the world. And then I've also seen the pendulum swung the other direction where there's zero self-care. And I think a lot of times within church that gets prescribed as like, okay, that's just, look at that servant. They're, they're so um, giving of themselves that they don't really care and they don't take care of themselves and they don't love thyself as thy neighbor. And they've completely um, rejected the image of God within themselves. Mm-hmm. So this, this whole um, article that David's talking about is, I think, a key thing. I, I know for my own kind of journey, like I've, I've kind of struggled in that way myself, but 
um, this idea that like you have to see the image of God within yourself as you do in your neighbor as well. Thanks, Leslie, for joining us and for those insights. <laughs> and as we close the podcast, I just hope that our listeners can have a great weekend and find some compassion that God has for them for themselves. Thanks again for listening to The Mockingcast. As usual, any of the content we reference can be found on our website at mbird.com. And we love mail. If you have feedback, please send an email to us at info at mbird.com. And if you liked what you heard, please uh, drop by iTunes and give us a rating and a review or share this podcast with a friend. As always, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.